Uru. But about a decade or so ago, Rob Bell was one of the big rising stars in the non-denominational evangelical world. He was the leader of a megachurch, Mars Hill Bible Church in Michigan. And he was one of these guys that people would look to for guidance to see what he was doing there. He was invited to speak at conferences. He wrote books that were bestsellers. His downfall occurred in 2011 when he wrote a book entitled Love Wins. And the thesis of that book was that because God is love, no one will ever ultimately be lost. Even in eternity, God will continue seeking after people to give him chance after chance after chance, and eventually, everyone's going to come around and be reconciled to God. Now, obviously, that's way outside the broad mainstream of historical Christianity. And that is in contradiction to what we read about in Scripture. But that resonates with a lot of people. That book was a bestseller. People who never were Christians read it and liked it. People who had at one point been Christians but drifted away, they, it appealed to them. And even among some professing Christians, that book resonated. Because we don't like to think about people being eternally lost. We don't like to talk about that. How could God do that? Bell puts it this way in his book. Millions have been taught that if they don't believe, if they don't accept in the right way according to the person telling them the gospel, and they were hit by a car and died later that same day, God would have no choice but to punish them forever in conscious torment in hell. God would, in essence, become a fundamentally different being to them in that moment of death, a different being to them forever. A loving heavenly father who will go to extraordinary lengths to have a relationship with them would, in the blink of an eye, become a cruel, mean, vicious tormentor who would ensure that they would have no escape from an endless future of agony. If there was an earthly father who was like that, we would call the authorities. If there was an actual human dad who was that volatile, we would contact Child Protective Services immediately. Now that's a horrible caricature of God. God is not capricious. God is not an arbitrary tyrant. God is not a loving father one minute and then cruel and vindictive the next minute. The problem is we don't fully understand God's nature. Now, in our Bible class this morning, it was pointed out by some, and, and rightly so, that any time we talk about God, we necessarily do that by analogy. That is, as humans, we can't fully grasp God, and that's true. But what I mean is, we don't even really try to wrap our heads around everything that the Bible has to say about God. God is love. But we have to understand that statement in light of a deep reflection on everything that Scripture has to say about that and not just what we assume it means when God is love or what we want it to mean. 
If you want to talk about one-to-one descriptors in Scripture, God is love, yeah. But God also is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. Our God is a consuming fire, the Hebrews writer says in chapter 12, verse 29. And a passage we referenced this morning from Revelation chapter 4, those beings praising God around the heavenly throne room, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That holiness, that light without any hint of darkness, that perfect righteousness has to be kept in mind. That's an important part of who God is too. And because God is holy, he cannot tolerate sin. It's a distortion, it's a blemish, it's a marring of his good creation. And really in a certain light, the whole story, the narrative of the Bible from humanity being booted out of the garden because of their sin to all the precautions that are taken to ensure that the Ark of the Covenant can be in the midst of the camp of Israel to the new heaven and the new earth that are pictured in Revelation. The whole story of the Bible is about how can a pure and holy God live with his unholy people. And that's where the idea of God's wrath comes in. Now, when we talk about wrath, we usually think of that as a bad thing. We probably don't talk about our own wrath too much. That's not a word we we use too often. But we know that this refers to anger, strong anger. And if we're talking about our own anger, well, it usually is a bad thing. But Paul says, for instance, in Ephesians chapter 4, to be angry and do not sin. Well, that indicates right there that it's at least possible to be angry in such a way that we don't sin. What would that look like? Well, we usually refer to this sort of anger as righteous indignation. We have this pictured for us by Jesus on a couple of occasions. Jesus got angry, didn't he? And yet we know Jesus didn't sin. So in Mark chapter 3, for instance, Jesus is going to perform a healing and his opponents are there doubting him and stirring up trouble and he looks around at them and it says he was angry with them because of the hardness of their hearts. Or you can think about how he got angry with those money changers at the temple and he drove them out because they had turned God's house, a house of prayer, into a den of robbers. Jesus was angry, but he was angry and he didn't sin. And it shows us here a model, someone who is is zealous for God's will, someone who is angry when it's violated, that's a good thing. And that gives us at least some inkling of what God's wrath is all about. There are several different Hebrew words that are used that are translated as wrath, but all of them fundamentally boil down to the same idea. God's reaction to his unfaithful covenant people. That's what God's wrath is primarily, his reaction to his unfaithful people. A good example of this is in Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 19. For I was afraid, this is Moses talking, I was afraid of the anger and hot displeasure that the Lord bore against you. 
so that he was ready to destroy you. Now, this is in the context of Moses telling the story of the golden calf incident. And wrath isn't in the ESV there, but you notice hot displeasure. Your translation might say wrath. That same word is one of those that's often translated as wrath. But I like how it says hot displeasure here. That's more literal, and that gives us an idea here of what it means. God is hot. It arouses great heat in him when he sees his covenant people violating his will. He's a jealous God. And here they are going after false gods, gods who are not gods at all. The same thing is generally true of the Greek word that's primarily translated as wrath, orge. It means strong indignation directed at wrongdoing. You see, the point is, God's wrath isn't arbitrary at all. He's not this volatile person who's loving one minute and then is wrathful the next. He's angry at wrongdoing. That distinguishes him from the pagan gods. This is important for us to understand. The pagan gods had wrath. They got angry with people, but it was for any number of reasons. You see, one thing all pagan religions had in common is that the gods don't have anything to do with morality. We're so used to associating what's moral and what's immoral with God's will versus violating God's will, but that's not the way it was in the ancient world. Now, pagans had definite concepts of right and wrong, what's moral and immoral, but that, generally speaking, was the realm of philosophers, the relationship with the pagan gods was based on reciprocity. That is, I try to do something for the god, I offer a sacrifice, I make a vow to him, and in return, I'm hoping that they'll do something for me. It's a, it's a quid pro quo. The Romans, <laughs> the Romans even had this ceremony, it's called evocation, uh, when they were going up against some foreign army or a rebellious city-state, and they would have this ceremony where they would try to get the gods to change sides. <laughs> hey, you don't want to be the gods of these chumps anymore. You want to come be the Roman gods. We're going to serve you better than they do. That's what paganism was all about. And on the other hand, in terms of morality, the pagan gods weren't even moral themselves. You ever studied Greek mythology even a little bit? Then you know exactly what I'm talking about when you think about some of the stunts that Zeus and those other guys got up to. Paganism had nothing to do with morality. Their gods were arbitrary, wrathful, for no reason whatsoever. But that's not God. God is the Holy One. His wrath is his response to sin. This is something that is revealed to us in Scripture over and over and over. It's characteristic of God. It's defining of him just as much as love is defining of him. So much so that sometimes writers will speak of wrath generically or the wrath. They won't qualify it as God's wrath because it's just assumed, it's known that they're talking about God's wrath. Uh, for example, Matthew chapter 3, verse 7, John the Baptist, those Pharisees and Sadducees have come out there to see what he's up to in the wilderness. You remember what he says? You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? 
He's talking about God's wrath. Or Jesus for telling the destruction of Jerusalem. This is Luke chapter 21. He says, there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. In short, God's wrath means that he intensely hates all sin. We usually see this come out in the narrative passages of Scripture, and this is especially true when God's people sin against him. Because remember, his wrath is primarily his displeasure when his covenant people are unfaithful. The best example of this is in the story of the golden calf. I already alluded to this from Deuteronomy, but we actually find the story in Exodus chapter 32. And most of you probably remember this story. Israel is encamped at Mount Sinai. They've just agreed to this covenant relationship with God. It's based on his gracious act of deliverance from Egyptian bondage. And God says, now because I've done this, I want you to be my people and to serve me. It's a sort of... uh, an ancient type of feudal lord and uh, vassal relationship where God is going to bless them, he's going to protect them, and in return, if they're his people, they have to keep up their end of the bargain, some stipulations that God lays upon them, and they agree. They make this covenant, they're going to be his people. And Moses is up on the mountain getting the Ten Commandments from God that are to be the, the basis, the primary stipulations that they're going to keep as part of this covenant. But Moses is gone a long time. And they start to get impatient. Finally, they demand of Aaron in Exodus 32, verse number one, get up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. Well, Aaron complied with their request. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. You see, here we see some of these threads of our previous word studies and even what we've looked at some on Sunday morning coming together here. They rejected the worship of the Creator, the one who'd made them, the one who delivered them from Egypt, the one who'd made his covenant with them. Instead, they decided that they were going to do things their own way. They effectively worshiped the creature instead of the Creator. They rebelled against him. And because of that, God justly, was angry. Verse number eight, or pardon me, verse nine. The Lord said to Moses, I've seen this people and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them that I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. There's God's wrath. His just and righteous anger because his people have been unfaithful. So what about the consequences of wrath? Sometimes they're immediate, just like they are here in this story. And maybe sometimes they're immediate in our own lives, although I won't pretend that we can always know that the way that we do here. But God's wrath came particularly to be thought of in terms of the day of judgment. So, for example, in Zephaniah chapter 1, the prophet speaks there of a day of wrath, talking about judgment. 
He says, the great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. In the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed for a full and sudden end he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. Judgment is when God's wrath ultimately will be poured out. A lot of the prophets talk about this, and sometimes we like to think about this as an Old Testament thing. You know, the Old Testament God's a God of wrath, but that's not the God who reveals himself in the New Testament. He's a God of grace and love and mercy. But it's just as strongly emphasized in the New Testament. John chapter 3, the same chapter where we find the golden text of the Bible, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Just a few verses later, towards the end of that chapter, verse 36, Jesus says, whoever believes in the son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Paul talks about this in Romans. There's a lot of references to it in Romans, but in Romans chapter 1, for example, where he talks about worshiping creation instead of the creator and all the litany of sins that he lists there, he says in verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness of men. We could go on with examples like this. Now, God's wrath is counterbalanced by his love that's true and we don't want to miss that part of the story but when the gospel is presented in the new testament it's not as if god's act of grace and mercy in christ is in contrast to his wrath you're to respond to the gospel to save yourself from wrath it's not that God is not going to pour out his wrath. It's so you can avoid that wrath when he does pour it out. In Acts chapter 17, Paul says in concluding his sermon on Mars Hill, the times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he's appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. In Jesus, we've been delivered from the wrath to come, Paul says, 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 10. See, the point of all this is we need to understand both aspects of God's character, his love and his wrath, in order to fully appreciate it. There was a time, especially in this country, after the Protestant Reformation and I think of the Puritans and some others, when the strong emphasis was on God's wrath. And we've all heard preaching like that. It was all hellfire and brimstone, and you need to save, be saved from God's wrath. And in the last 50 to 100 years, there's been a, a correction, an 
emphasis on the fact that, well, that's true, but God is also a God of love and mercy and grace. He's our heavenly father. And that's true, too. We need to know that. But as with so many things, sometimes that pendulum swings so far to the other direction that I wonder if we don't emphasize God's love and his mercy and his grace to the exclusion of talking about his wrath. We need both of those things in balance to really understand God's character. And in fact, you can't even really understand God's love unless you understand God's wrath. God is holy, and his holiness necessitates wrath against sin. He can't tolerate it because of his nature. But his love means that he withholds his wrath from us. He stays his hand. He doesn't pour it out on us immediately. We can't really appreciate the love God demonstrated to us in Christ without understanding that. We can't understand the great price he was willing to pay without understanding his wrath. If sin wasn't so terrible, and if God's wrath didn't need to be satisfied, then what God did in Christ wouldn't be love. It'd be a tragedy. It'd be worse than that. It would be a crime. But there was no other way. God did all that he could do. There's a hymn. I don't know. Some of you will know this, and I wish we sang it here. I don't think it's even in our books, but it's called In Christ Alone. And part of one of the stanzas goes, till on that cross where Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on him was laid. Here in the blood of Christ, I live. Thank God he was willing to make a way so that his wrath didn't have to be poured out on us. But the question you need to ask yourself tonight, because God hates sin and because his wrath justly is manifested towards sin, are you subject to the wrath of God? Is there sin in your life that you need to repent of this evening in order to be right with him? If that's the case, you need to make changes this evening. And he invites you to do that now while we stand and while we sing.